Well, hey there, and welcome back to today's episode of Basecamp as we are in a study in systematic theology. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at God's glorious plan of redemption. And as we said, these wonderful things that we are studying together are such great, great things to give our minds to comprehending, right? To, to understanding God's secret rescue plan, this mystery that was hidden throughout the ages, but now made known through Christ. And specifically, what we've been thinking about is how our salvation has been planned, won, secured, and applied by God so that now we are those who once walked as Gentiles, right, from our study of Ephesians, but, but now, now we love, trust, and believe upon Jesus, right? So, so as we are trying to walk in a new way of life, as we are trying to love God with our minds, it's such a wonderful thing to, to spend time thinking about how God saved us, right? Because studying God's plans and purposes around salvation means that we're learning about his character and nature, but also hearing our own like spiritual birth story, right? If you had babies, people have had babies around you. It's like hearing the birth story. How did, how did that happen? Uh, likewise, that's what this is. It's like pulling the curtain back so that we might see how God has so loved us and how he brought us into his family through this new birth and then applied our salvation. And so for the last couple of episodes, what we've been walking through what theologians often refer to as the order of salvation, right? That really helps us understand how God applies our redemption to us as Christians. A couple of episodes ago, we spoke about the first three steps or stages of the salvation order, election, the gospel call, and regeneration. Then last episode, we took a look at the two next stages, conversion and justification. We also took a look at the idea of a union with Christ and how it manifests itself through the act of conversion and is the reality of our justification. Now, in this episode, we will look at the next three steps or stages of the salvation order, adoption, sanctification, and perseverance. In other words, you could say that we'll be taking a look at God's glorious plan to adopt rebellious sinners, you and me, into his, <laughs> into his family to sanctify us, make us holy, and then his glorious plan to preserve and persevere us to the end. So, let's get to it. Now, the first subject we want to think about today is adoption. Now, the idea of adoption isn't a foreign concept to us, right? It's where the believer who was once a stranger to God, an enemy of God, in fact, enters into God's family and becomes a child of God. We all might even know people in our own lives who have been adopted, right? Those little lives that have been brought into a family, right? A little girl, a little boy was in the world, but he was not a part of that family. And yet later on one day, it could be like, like at, at, at 8 a.m. that morning, this kid wasn't a part of this family, but then nine o'clock that evening, they're going to bed at this new home. They are, <laughs> they are in a family, fully theirs, never to be given back. Once a stranger, but now part of the family their child. Well, so it is with us 
when we become Christians, the minute that we place our faith in Jesus, we start off that day, enemies of God, we go to bed that night, spiritually in Christ. Like it's, it's like we're going to bed in the family. Whereas before that morning, we, we woke up and we're going through our days not in the family. Adoption, as one theologian puts it, is that saving, that saving blessing wherein believers, by virtue of their communion with the true Son of God, share in his sonship by grace and are given the right to be called and received as beloved children of the Father and inherit the immeasurable rights and privileges secured by the only begotten Son, Jesus. By adoption, the redeemed become sons and daughters of the Lord God Almighty. They are introduced into and given the privileges of God's family. This is a beautiful thing. Now, you might wonder, when does that happen? When does it happen? Well, as I alluded to before, adoption comes after a sinner is converted and expresses faith in God. John 1.12 says that to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So the sinner, having been pardoned and constituted righteous in God's sight, we were justified, right? Given the cleared, uh, our, our sin is gone, we're covered in the righteous robes of, of Jesus. Now we, we walk in the robes of Christ. This new family robes are ours. So we become the recipient of sonship. We are the justified sinner then adopted into God's family. We gain, it's crazy, we gain freedom and a father all in the same moment. And this relationship is what we most desire as Christians. We we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The, The gospel isn't primarily about facts. And it's not about friends, but it's about being brought into a relationship with God. That's what it's all about. Everything about us drastically transforms. And if you're a Christian listening to this episode, I wonder how that strikes you. Right In a fallen world where relationships are broken, and divorce is widespread, children are estranged from parents and other siblings, does it matter to you that you always have a father in heaven who loves you and cares for you and you have these eternal relationships with brothers and sisters that will never be broken? See, whereas the doctrine of justification speaks to the relationship of the Christian to God as lawgiver and judge, he declares you righteous. The doctrine of adoption speaks to the relationship that we have with God as his son or daughter. So we see that God does more than justify us. He gives us an intimate relationship with himself as children of the Most High, which is wild, you guys. And as awesome as this doctrine is, I want to take us a look at where we find it in the Bible. Turn with me in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 to 5. And the first thing we want to see is that in love, the Father predestined the believer's adoption, our adoption in Christ from before the foundations of the world. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 5 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he, the Father, predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Right, so the adoption that he granted us has been his plan since before the foundations of the world. Now, turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. 
Here we want to see that the Father sent His Son into the world to do the redemptive work necessary, not only for our salvation, but also the purpose of our adoption. So Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 says, But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Do you see that? Adoption was in Christ's view as He went to the cross. The Father had His own Son go to the cross so that we might become His children. (laughs) That's wild. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. In this passage, I want you to see that the Father sent forth the Spirit of His Son into the heart of the believer for the distinct purpose of assuring us that the believer, you or I, are, are a child of God. So God the Spirit is sent by the Father to do this work in us. So look with me at Romans chapter 8, 14 to 17. It says, Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. So the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. What a great verse! See, the assurance of our salvation is wrapped up in our adoption as God's children. Lastly, uh, look with me a few verses down, verse 23. Uh, Notice here that the child of God, having received the spirit of adoption, awaits this final stage of adoption, when our fallen mortal body will be redeemed from corruption and we will be brought to a state of glory like that of Christ, where we have this new body. Romans 8.23 says, We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's this future view where we receive the full inheritance of our sonship. It's like we're adopted, but we're waiting for the final inheritance of those things. Like we're in the family, but we we haven't received the inheritance yet. Likewise, that's kind of what is kind of being presented in in Romans chapter 8. So we, we've been adopted as God's children, but the full effects, the full consummation of that adoption is still awaiting us in heaven. So let's look at the implications quickly then of the Christians, you and I, being adopted. So the fact that God relates to us as Father means that He loves us. That He loved the Father loves us. First John 3, 1, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. That's awesome. Not only that, but the Father understands us. Psalm 103, 13 to 14, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers we are dust. Also, the father provides for us and gives good gifts. Matthew 7, 11, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Also, he leads us by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Romans 8, 14, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Also throughout our lives, the Father disciplines us and keeps us on the path of life. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 says, And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Next, the Father makes us a family. First Titus five, uh, first Titus, uh, first Timothy five, one to two. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father, 
Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. We are a family. We are to treat one another with purity. Finally, the Father then makes us an heir. Galatians 4, 7, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. Since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Now you might be wondering, well, an heir of what? Well, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul addresses a division in the Corinthian church where people are boasting and grumbling in the stuff of this life. He said, so then no more boasting about men. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. So all things are ours in Christ. We are the rightful heirs of it all. Jonathan Edwards, he spoke well about the doctrine of adoption. He wrote, God makes his servants his children. All that serve him, he adopts them and gives them a right to the glorious privileges as the sons of God. He calls them no more servants, but he calls them children. He manifests himself to them, makes them his intimate friends, his heirs and joint heirs with his son. He showers his love upon them and embraces them in his arms and dwells in their souls and makes his dwelling with them and gives himself to them to be their father and their portion. In this life, he will frequently refresh them with the spiritual dews of heaven. He will shine upon them with beams of light and love, but hereafter he will make them perfectly happy in that forevermore. Was there ever so good a master as this? No, Jonathan, I don't, I don't think there is. <laughs> you see, when, when a person is adopted into God's family, the old adage, like father, like son, begins to ring true. As sanctification happens, which is our very next topic, sanctification. Now, there is a, a statement of faith that Capitol Hill Baptist has, and it kind of defines sanctification. And kind of like I shared last time of doctrine of, of justification, I think their, their uh, statement on sanctification is very good. I wanted to share it with us as a, as a church. So their statement of faith says this. We believe that sanctification is the process by which, according to the will of God, we are made partakers of his holiness and that it is a progressive work that it is begun in regeneration when we became Christians and that it is carried on in the hearts of believers by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the sealer and the comforter in the continual use of appointed means like the word of God, self-examination, self-denial, watchfulness, and prayer. To that I would also add, and our local church because we are God's great gifts to one another. And, and through us sharing with one another and speaking into one another's lives, we help preserve and persevere one another. We, we grow in sanctification as we hold one another accountable and share things with one another and gently correct one another's thoughts of God and, and, and feelings of God and then also talk to one another about the things of the Lord and help really apply Scripture into our lives. Put another way, uh, sanctification is said to be that saving blessing wherein believers, you and I, by virtue of being joined to Jesus Christ, the Holy One, share in the holiness of Christ, bearing the title of saints, and progressively realize the holiness that is already ours in Jesus. It is therefore that act of salvation in which God richly blesses us by bringing us into increasingly uh, increasing conformity to his perfect image, Jesus Put more simply, uh, maybe the cookies on the bottom shelf. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin 
and like Christ in our actual lives. And there's four things that should be understood about the nature of sanctification. Firstly, sanctification is uh, positional or definitive and occurs the very moment that we are regenerated, born again. Right? So when we became Christians, when we were born again, we're united to Christ, there is a definitive breach with sin, a setting apart or the committing to holiness and righteousness in the sinner. We see this in Romans chapter 6, right? When Paul writes that we've died to sin, been made alive in Christ. Sin no longer reigns over us and we're no longer under the power of sin. So that initial setting apart from sin for God is what we call definitive sanctification. We are holy, made holy. We are saints. So whereas we are slaves to sin before our conversion, through our union with Christ and his death and resurrection, we have been definitively sanctified such that we are no longer slaves to sin and no longer under the law, but ruled now by grace. That old man has had the mortal blow given to him. We are now called to put on the new self, right? Which we've been talking about in the book of Ephesians. This is what we're talking about, right? Wayne Grudem, he puts it this way. Once we have been born again, there is a moral change that happens in us such that we cannot continue to sin as a habit or a pattern of life, 1 John 3, 9. Because the power of a new spiritual life within us keeps us from yielding to a life of sin. So that's the first point. Second point, while the Bible speaks about a definite beginning to sanctification, it also sees sanctification as a process that continues throughout the Christian life. In this way, it is progressive, right? We grow in holiness by God's grace the rest of our lives. We aren't born perfectly, uh, born again, perfectly holy. No, we're born again as spiritual babies, right? We're not born again eating meat uh, and great steak and all these things. No baby does that. No (laughs) babies grow. We grow in holiness by God's grace, and it will happen the rest of our lives. Right, turn with me to uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says that we are progressively becoming more and more like Christ as we live out our Christian lives. This is what he says. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And then Philippians 3.13, Paul talks about his own state of sanctification. He says, Brothers, uh, this is Philippians 3, 13 to 14. He says, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Friends, even Paul doesn't consider himself to be perfectly holy. He knows he needs work. He knows that the Holy Spirit will continue to work in him to sanctify him and make him into the image of the Son. And so it is with us. There are many things that we think that are still Gentile ways and patterns of thinking. There are so many feelings of our hearts which are still very much from who we were before we became Christians. There are desires and longings and loves that need to die. And there are ways of living that need to be transformed. And God will grow us in that throughout the rest of our lives. So thirdly, while we are being made into the image of Christ, we must understand that perfect holiness is never had in this lifetime. That's very important. Our sanctification will never be complete in this life. Rather, perfect holiness, complete sanctification, is only attained at death or at the Lord's coming. <laughs> Turn with me to 1 John 3, starting in verse 2. John writes, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what, will we, or what we will be uh, has not yet been made known. 
But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 12 that it is only when we come into the presence of God that we will be made perfect. Finally, fourthly, sanctification is a twofold process. It is our work and God's work. It's another synergistic work. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. You think of the words of Paul, where, where the work of man and God is spoken as, uh, as, a, of, as, as active in the sanctification process. So Paul writes in verse 12, uh, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you see that? It's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God empowering you to do that. Right? In order to understand this concept, we must understand that sanctification is primarily work of God. That's why Paul can pray in 1 Thessalonians 5, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Right? The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 13, Now may the God of peace who brought again uh, from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. So it is God who's primary actor in our sanctification. And the person of the Godhood most active in this process is the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul can write again in, in Galatians 5 that if we grow in sanctification, we walk by the Spirit and are led by the Spirit. The Spirit of holiness works within us to change our passions, desires, attitudes, and actions. But we also must realize we are also involved actors in the sanctification process. This is not sanctification by osmosis. We, we play a passive role but also an active role, right? We play the passive role as it relates to our trusting in God to sanctify us and praying to God that he will work in us to conform us into his son. Turn with me again, Romans 8, 13. Paul writes, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Paul realized that we are utterly dependent on the spirit's work in us to grow us in our sanctification, so yes, we do play a passive role in the sanctification process, but we also play an active role as well. You'll note that in the same verse, Paul commands his listeners, put to death the deeds of the body. Right, so sure, it's by the Spirit we are empowered to do this, but at the end of the day, we must do it. <laughs> we must do it. We must mortify these things, put them to death. Notice it, it isn't the Holy Spirit that is commanded to put to death the deeds of the body, but rather us as Christians. We are called with the Spirit's help to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's why Paul can write in Philippians 4, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We can work it out by acting upon the Spirit's prompting and empowerment to will and to work for his good pleasure. This brings us to our next topic, which is perseverance. Right. So if God is sanctifying those that he elected and regenerated and justified and adopted, then the question is, can a Christian fall from their justified state? Now, again, I'm going to look at the Capitol Hill uh, Baptist Church's statement of faith. They have an article on there on the perseverance of the saints. It's very good. This is what they write. It's very succinct. 
They say, we believe that such only are real believers as endure to the end. We believe that such only are real believers as endure to the end. That their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors. That a special providence watches over their welfare, and they're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. In other words, true Christians cannot lose their salvation. Or a way that I talk about that often is, if you are born again by the Spirit, genuinely converted, made new, how does how does someone who is born again become unborn? How can someone who, like, like if you have a baby, if you have a baby and they're born, if they're born, they, they cannot be unborn. That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. A, 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 a child could die, but, but, but become unborn. That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. Likewise, with the Spirit, if we are born again by the Spirit, how do we become unborn again? That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. If we are justified, how do we become unjustified? These things don't make any sense in regards to what we read in the Bible. We're going to take a, a closer look at, at basically two parts or sides of the definition. First, there's the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, and it affirms that, that all who are truly born again will persevere to the end. This idea, while somewhat controversial, is clearly born out of Scripture. John chapter 6, beginning of verse 38, Jesus speaks about why he came down from heaven. He says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. In that, note the certainty in the language of this passage. Right, Jesus will lose none or no one, as it were. He makes the emphatic statement, he will raise up Christians on the last day. It's not the, oh, I just hope, or if all goes well, and, and it's not, well, if they hang in there and don't lose salvation, then yep, I will do it. No. He says he will do these things. This is God making a promise. Later in the Gospel of John, Jesus declares, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. They shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Again, there's no ambiguity in the Bible over this. No one, not other people, not Satan, not even we ourselves, can separate us from God once he has brought us to himself, once he has made us born again. We can't be unborn again. He's brought us to himself. We're in the family. We can't be unadopted. Right? <laughs> Also, we see further evidence for this doctrine because God has placed his seal upon us. We talk about this in Ephesians 1, verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Right? Pressed down, sealed, secured. This, this earnest money, the Spirit is our 
earnest. That's all these words are encapsulated in that we're sealed. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Brothers and sisters, we cannot, we will not lose our salvation if we are in Christ Jesus. That's the message of the Bible. And that is the promise of the very one who has written our names in the Lamb's book of life. Rest assured, if you are in Christ, you are his for all of eternity. God will keep you. He will persevere you to the end. And only those who persevere to the end are those who have been truly born again. Of course, you're asking yourself, well, Aaron, how come I see people fall away from the faith? They walk away from Christianity. Well, as Christians, we believe that only real believers endure to the end, that their persevering attachment to Jesus is the mark that distinguishes us from superficial professors. Jesus even himself told a story, right, of there are some that receive uh, that receive the gospel word with joy. Right? Their lives are marked by joy. But then persecution on account of the word comes, and what happens? They fall away. There are those who they they have the, the cares of this world, the riches of the world, call after them, they, they run away. But but if you are attached to Christ, you are safe and secure. Yes, there are superficial professors. There are people who think that they they're professing Christ and they really are genuinely converted. But in perseverance, we see if someone is a superficial professor of Christ or an actual genuine professor of Christ. See, while the Bible stresses the fact that God's power will keep the one who's been born again until the end, the Bible also stresses the fact that only those who persevere to the end can be said to have been truly born again. In other words, only the truly saved, truly born again, truly made new, will continually evidence faith and repentance until death. For those who turn their back on the faith and fall away, the Bible tells us that we can be sure that they were never truly saved. We must remember that God guarantees that those who are truly saved will make it. God does preserve and persevere the Christian in his faith. Right? So perseverance is the true sign that one is truly a believer. Now, turn to Colossians 1 with me if you want to look there uh, in verse 22 paul's explaining why christ had to die on the cross and he says god has reconciled you by christ's physical body in order to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm not moved from the hope held out in the gospel it's colossians 1 22 to 23 you know the point here is that remaining in faith is one of the clear signs that someone is truly in the family now, the idea is not meant to cause true believers fear or anxiety that because they, they struggle with a certain sin, that, that they've fallen away from God's grace and are not truly saved. Now, if we're saved by God's grace, and that is our basis, then we can be sure that we won't fall away by our own works. We did not work our way into the kingdom by our works. We cannot lose that which we did not earn. <laughs> you know what I mean? Rather, it's meant to call to account and warn people who have fallen away and continue in their sin and cease to exhibit the fruit of salvation that their continued unrepentance is a very good indication that their faith was never real. 
Now, those who finally fall away may give many external signs of conversion, as I mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago. So you might wonder, well, what about those who finally fall away but gave at some point in their life external signs of conversion? What do we do with that? Well, according to Jesus, the external signs were in fact false signs born out as such in by the passage of time. So that parable of the sower I talked about a minute ago, you, you recall seed is sown, the actual sprung up in several places, right? The seed grew for a time in rocky soil and thorny soil and good soil. But this is this is what Jesus explains, those stony ground and thorny ground. I want you to just actually see his words and not just my, my little explanation of it a moment ago. This is what Jesus says. He says, some people are like seeds sown on rocky places. They hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Thus the sad reality is that there are those who are clearly not Christians, despite what might have been an encouraging appearance at the beginning. So whether these people are conscious, false brethren, as Paul calls some who pretend to be Christians, purposely being deceitful for whatever reason, or whether they are self-deceived in some other way, thinking they are Christians when they're not, Right, because they're born in Canada. Of course, they're Christian or whatever. Some others can still outwardly look like genuine believers, but in either case, Scripture is clear as to their final fate. Matthew 7, 21 to 23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, get that, many will say to me. That word is, that word is, that word is hard. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Notice the language there. It's not, oh, I knew you and you turned from me. It's not, oh, I no longer know you. No, it's, I never knew you. Again, driving home the idea that there's no such thing biblically as a loss of true salvation. First John 2.19 sums up this very well as well. It says, They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Church, as we close this episode, I'm going to end this way. While we, while we must be on the lookout for false believers, people around us that might think they're Christians, that we can share the gospel with and hopefully they become believers. Like I had a good buddy of mine, actually, the, the church planter that we're partnering with in Montreal. Uh, when I first met him, he said, oh, I'm a Christian. And I said, oh, yeah? He said, yeah. I said, oh, well, Christians read the Bible together. Why don't we read the Bible together? And we started reading the Bible together and a couple of months later, he became a Christian. <laughs> uh, and... And so we must be on the lookout for false believers. Yes, because this is a real thing. People might say they are Christians or they even have evidences they're, they're Christians. We must be on the lookout for false believers so we can encourage them and actually share the gospel with them. But we should also be encouraged to see the fruit in our own lives and the lives of others. We should be, we should be looking for fruit as evidences of God's grace of redemption in others' lives and and share that with them. We should be encouraging one another, building one another up in that, actually, as we see the gospel impact one another's lives. In fact, a great thing for us to do, even, even this week, 
It would be even to send a little text, a little note to someone, encourage them, say, hey, I, I have just been noticing your life, uh, noticing the way you, you serve, noticing the way that you, you talk about the things of the Lord in this last season, and, and I can tell you're really growing in your faith. Use, use the means God has given us to build one another up as Christians. Encourage one another to see the fruit. Because we can't see it often in our own lives. We, like the forest, we're just in the forest. We can't see the forest for the trees. And we need one another as God's great gifts to point these things out in us, to help us, to see, to, to have just these evidences of God's grace, of redemption in our lives. It, it's, like, it's like when... When grandparents that live far away, they, they see your kids after a long time and they say, well, you've grown. And we're like, oh, yeah, I guess they have. Yeah, they've grown. But it takes others to see us. Just, hey, you've grown. That, they'll realize, oh, yeah, there has been growth here. <laughs> Especially that's helpful in the early days of parenting uh, because, uh, man, those are hard days. But it's even more important in our lives, the older that we get spiritually, that, that we're growing Encourage one another in that. For that reason, it's a mercy of God to grant us just fruit in our lives and to be able to help one another see that. So God gives us fruit so that we can see his handiwork in our lives and be assured of our salvation. Now, we, we don't have a lot of time to go into the details of doctrine of assurance, uh, but, but I want to rest assured that, that the same God that raised you from the dead is the same God who can and will persevere you to the end. This is our guarantee that if we are in Christ, he will do that. So thanks for tuning in again to this episode of Basecamp. It's just been a, such a great joy to, to think through and process through some of these things with you. Again, we want to thank the wonderful folks at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. for giving us uh, the, the outlines and bones of, of today's episode and, and for the way that they are just loving and serving uh, ministries like ours globally. Uh, by making resources like this available that we might continue to love the things of God with our minds and correct our ways of thinking and, uh, and that our ways of thinking might bleed its way down into our hearts that we may feel and love the things of God that we might live out our lives in a, in a, a grateful, gracious, worshipful, um, sanctified, holy way as a result of his word dwelling richly in us. So thanks for tuning in. I uh, pray this has been beneficial, and uh, we'll see you next time. Uh-huh.